Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The Lord descended into the cloud and stood there with them and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will be by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. With the Apostles' Creed, we talked a little bit about why it's important last week. Um, today, I want to talk about the very first petition of that Lord's Prayer, or the uh, Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And I'm hoping that as we go through this, you'll begin to memorize it so that, um, you know, this is really about what people use to be their witness to the world. When you understand this Apostles' Creed, when you can uh, use this effectively as a model for how to witness, to share your faith, because that's what it was intended to do. And so hopefully each and every week as we talk about these, you'll, you'll put it to memory. And uh, as we get through the end, you'll be able to recite this and know it and be empowered by it and share your faith um, through this creed to those who are wondering about um, what you believe, what you trust in. Because you see, the reality is we are a nation that when they take polls over and over, we overwhelmingly say that we believe in God. And yet, when you look at the world, um, you see that the reality is that very, people, very few people live as if God actually exists. We just kind of do our own thing. Um, and yet, we have a, a nation that talks about how they believe in God. You see, to say, I believe, in a creedal sense means more than simply holding certain propositions to be true or false. To say that I believe in the sense of the Apostles' Creed, is a heart-felt, heart-belief, heart-based belief. It's something that resonates in your heart, something that you believe with all your heart, something that you're willing to do, an unconditional surrender to, a trust to a power greater than yourself. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Faith in God often develops the way a child's love for good parents actually develops. You see, faith in the parent begins by perceiving that this parent is someone who will take intimate care and immediate care of my needs and, and will be there for me. And we grow with that, that trust as we're little. And then we grow up, we, we grow up to believe that parent is someone who's to be obeyed. And we believe they're to be obeyed, though we are sometimes reluctant to admit it, we need to obey them because they're doing and they know what's best for us. But then comes our, that period of time in our lives when there begins to be doubts and sometimes rebellion and always questioning whether 
you know, the parent really has my best interests at mind. Because, of course, I know what I really want, and I know what I really need. And then hopefully comes at some point maturity, and we begin to understand these things and grow in that maturity. I think Mark Twain once said this whole process best when he said, when I was 16, I realized how stupid my father was. He didn't know anything. He was a real embarrassment to me. When I turned 21, I was amazed to discover how much the old man learned in five years. <laughs> and faith often works in the very same way. It matures, and in maturing, it learns to appreciate. And then out of that pre appreciation begins to come this whole process of, of growing in, in grace and growing in an in attitude of gratitude and uh, a praise for the one who watches over you. And then suddenly, as you grow in your faith, the whole world looks a lot different than it used to look because now you're looking at a world through grateful eyes, looking through the world through a God who loves you and sustains you, a God who is always there for you. The trouble is that some people never allow their hearts to embrace God. It's kind of like they have that hard soil in the parable of the, the sower, and, and that seed, God's love and grace, just never seems to be able to penetrate that hard soil. And for other people, whether they're they have faith. It kind of starts in the wrong place. They're kind of fed bad information. And so their faith seems to lead only to despair and to doubts. And so pretty soon they abandon their faith. And for other people, their faith may begin in the right place. But then before long, it doesn't really mature. Because somehow they get this idea that now that they're saved, that's all that really matters. And so their faith never really takes any deep root. You know, people often say that the great divide of faith is between those who can say, I believe in God in some sense, and those who say, I don't. You know, a lot of people assume that it's all things, all religions lead to the same mountaintop. So if you believe in God, you believe in God. And so the reality is that for them, faith of one kind or other is really quite secondary. But in the Bible and in the Apostles' Creed, the great divide is between those who believe in the God of the Bible and those who don't. In Genesis 3, as Dean was sharing a little while ago, God revealed his name to Moses. And he said, my name is basically Yahweh, which translates from Hebrew, I am who I am, or I will be what I will be. In other words, God is declaring to Moses and then to all of Israel and to the world that he cannot be hindered from being what he is and doing what he wills. He is almighty. And all that God intends, he will do. And then in Exodus 34, 5, God proclaims again his name to Moses by setting forth his moral character. And God says that he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, but who will by no means clear the guilty. The Apostles' Creed is clear that God is almighty, that he is the omnipotent one, the all-powerful one, and that he reigns over the whole world. 
As Acts 17.27 says, in it only it is in God that we live and move and have our very being. But the reality is, is even though God is omnipotent, it doesn't mean he can do anything he wants. God can't do anything. You see, God can't be self-contradictory. God can't do things that are nonsensical. He can't square a circle or a circle a square or do silly things. Nor can God act out of character. God has a perfect moral character, and it, God can't be capricious. God can't be unloving. God can't be unjust. God can't be inconsistent with himself. God can't deny his promises. Just as God cannot pardon sin without atonement, so God cannot fail to be faithful in forgiving sins that are confessed or in fulfilling those promises. God's omnipotence makes it impossible for him to lapse into any sort of imperfection. God has to be true to himself. But, as Psalm 135 clearly makes the statement, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Nothing, not even human free will, can limit God's power to fulfill his good purposes. You see, human power of spontaneity and responsible choice is a created thing. God created us with those very things. And God's power to fulfill his purposes in life will never be limited by anything that he has created. He's always greater than his creation. His creation can never limit God. And so God works out his will through the functioning of his creation, through us, through his world that he's made. And he does it in such a way that he never affects the integrity or freedom of his creation. In other words, human free will is not illusionary unless you think that somehow you only have free will when you can act contrary or an opposite or apart from how God works. Free will is simply stated this, the power of spontaneous self-determining choice. Now, how God sustains your free choice and yet overrules it to accomplish his divine purposes is a divine mystery. But that he does it is a certainty. Scripture is clear. We have free will. And he, it's clear by the simple fact, with a sobering insistence, that we will all be held accountable and responsible to God for the choices that we make in life. All of our actions, we will be accountable. Our free will is not illusory. But our free will can never impede God's good purposes. People often say that if God is really almighty, if he really can do all these things, then why doesn't he do something about the evil in the world? Why doesn't he do something about all the sickness and all the pain that's in the world? And the reality is if you have eyes to see, that is exactly what God's been doing. You see, through Jesus Christ, bad folk, bad folk like you and me, already being made new. We've been given new natures. 
And we have been given a promise that one day we will be given pain-free, disease-free, eternal bodies. And that one day we will be in a place there is no more pain, no more struggles, no more hardships. Romans 8.18 assures us that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in and to us. Now, if God moves too slowly, then we need to remember what 2 Peter 3.9 says. Peter says, God is not slow in keeping his promises as we understand slowness. Instead, God is patient because God doesn't want anyone to perish. But God wants everyone to come to repentance. Now, once again, if you think about what Peter says here, it demonstrates that we do have free, spontaneous, self-determining choice. Because while it's God's desire that all should come to repentance, that all should come into his love and his grace, the reality is we know that not everyone will. We have the freedom to choose or to reject God. The truth that God is almighty and sovereign over his creation is the basis of all our hopes. If God were not sovereign, we would have no hope. If there's anything that could defeat God, we would have no certainty of salvation. We would have no chance of having a real peace, a real joy, because there would be something greater than God, something God cannot control. But the reality is God is almighty. And because he is neither fate, nor blind chance, nor human folly, nor even Satan's malice will ever have the final say in your life, God does. A morally perfect God runs his creation. And nothing and no one can dethrone him or thwart his good purposes. For all that God intends, he will accomplish. I think one of the Stories I once heard a long time ago that made me think about um, this God's being God Almighty and accomplishing his purposes is a story that actually is told about a movie. How many of you have ever seen the movie, the original Ben-Hur with Charlton Heston? So if you've seen this, then this, you understand what I'm saying here. Anyway, in that movie, Charlton Heston um, Every day after they would do their scenes that they needed for um, the production, he would then go backstage or behind all the, the scenery and things where they had built a coliseum. And in that coliseum, he would get on his chariot with his four horses and he would begin to race around uh, that coliseum. And so every day after he would do his lines and do his part, then, and they were finished, he would get on his chariot and drive those horses around that oval. And he did that every day. And finally, when it came time for the big production, because, of course, the chariot scene is the big production in the show, when it came time that we were really getting ready to do this, Charlton Heston walked up to the director of the movie. His name was William Wyler. And he walked up and he said, uh, Bill, he said, I think I can stay in the race. I don't know if I can win it. And Bill Wyler, or William Wyler, looked at him. He said, Chuck, you just stay in the race. I'll see that you win. <laughs> and you see, that's what the Apostles' Creed wants to say to you today. That's what this petition in the Apostles' Creed means. 
It's as you come together, as you put your trust, your hope, and, you know, look towards the Lord and keep your eyes focused on Jesus. What he's saying is, my precious son, my precious daughter, just trust me. If you will just stay in the race, I'll see that you win. Amen.